September 20th, 2017. Hurricane Maria hits Puerto Rico. It's been three months and the island is far from getting any better. A humanitarian crisis where no power, no food, no services, and a broken system that shows the inefficiencies, the corruption, lack of leadership, organization, and the willingness to help is showing the true colors of politicians in the local government in Puerto Rico as well in the federal environment. But where there's despair, there's also hope. These are the chronicles of Josie Valentin and Miriam Quiñones, who took upon themselves the initiative of creating a way to support the people in Puerto Rico with the Boricua Care Packages Project, followed by a three-week journey visiting several cities in the island, bringing donations, providing help, and showing the support from the Puerto Rican diaspora in the United States and all the people that have shown support, donating, and sending goods to the people in Puerto Rico. Welcome to this special edition of the Radio Plasma Podcast. This is the Boricua Care Packages Project, a journey of love and hope by Josie Valentin and Miriam Quiñones. I'm Johan Rashi Vega. My name is Miriam Quiñones, and I will be talking about um, our experience in our trip to Puerto Rico during the disaster relief efforts. And my name is Josie Valentin. I'm a resident of Holyoke and a proud Puerto Rican who uh, was extremely honored, privileged, and humbled to be able to do three weeks of relief work in Puerto Rico after Hurricanes Irma and Maria. How the care packages idea originated. So when the Hurricane Irma happened, we were, as well as the Puerto Rican community in Puerto Rico, were ready, ready for a disaster. And then Irma took a turn and it only hit uh, some parts of Puerto Rico, like the island of Culebra and other parts of the north of the island. But it really didn't do much damage. Then a week later, People are not ready. They are, they are celebrating the fact that, that Irma didn't hurt the island, and then they get impacted with Maria, and it really devastated the entire island. And for one week, we, the Puerto Ricans in the diaspora, were desperate to learn about our families. No one knew about their families for about a week, and it took days for some Um, the next day, for some five days, for some an entire week. And so we suffered that desperation of not knowing how they were, whether they got hit. And, and we saw much more than the, the people in Puerto Rico that uh, were able to see because they lost electricity, they lost the antennas for them to see what's going on in the island and the rest of the island. They lost uh, water as well right away. And so... They didn't know about the, their families around the island. We didn't know about our families in the island. And so once a week happened, we started seeing footage of devastations, uh, mudslides, uh, the streets turned into rivers, the uh, electric poles, they were on the floor like beds. There was so much damage, and we start seeing pictures of our family members. And so 
I remember seeing a picture of a cousin of mine who lives in Jauco in, in the in El Barrio, El Masigo Bajo, and I noticed that she had lost her home. And this is a home that she built with very little savings, and I know that it, it was very difficult for her to build this home, call it, you know, her place. And suddenly this hurricane just takes everything and rips it off. And when I saw that, I felt so incompetent. I, f I felt so, I didn't know, I felt like I needed to do something about it and I didn't know what that was. I couldn't rebuild her home. So I, I reached out to Josie and I said, we need, I feel like we need to do something. And so over here in, in Holyoke and in the rest of the, the United States, wherever we're, there were Puerto Ricans, there were people already fundraising and collecting water and collecting canned goods and clothing and whatever they could to send out to Puerto Rico. But they had nothing, no, no, nowhere to send it. Nothing was working. The, uh, the mail was not working. Everything was stopped in the island. And so we were stuck with all these supplies that we couldn't even do anything with them. But people were desperate. People needed to give. And so they, they just got out on the streets. I remember driving on High Street and, and seeing all these people on the street trying to stop the cars, trying to collect money. They were desperate, and there were piles of water right on the street there. They were trying to collect. We were all desperate. And so once we learned that there were some addresses that were working and that some um, the mail was working in certain areas, I said to Josie, what if we do, what if we do, people want to work. It's like, what if we do adopt-family care packages? And people will donate, donate supplies, and donate money, and we can make our home that space. And so then we'll, we'll just send the packages to those addresses that we, we know, you know are, are receiving mail. And so we started that. And so we put it out, Josie put it out there on, on social media, and suddenly we were blessed with so many donations. It was amazing. The people of Holyoke, of Springfield, of as far as Boston, Texas, they were responding to our call. And it was a beautiful, beautiful sight. It was a, a tiring two weeks of packaging, but we ended up sending 185 packages to different parts of the island. And of course, the first package went to my cousin who had lost it all and was the one who sparked that idea. So that's where our journey started. And so 155 care packages later, people still wanted to keep giving. And, you know, people say, well, how did you decide to go to Puerto Rico? Well, we did the 185. That was incredibly successful. We were getting pictures and text messages and Facebook messages and WhatsApp messages with pictures and messages literally saying, we received your box. Thank you so much. We don't know who you are, but thank you. And so we said, okay, so what, what's next here? Because people wanted to keep giving. And so both of us are trained disaster relief volunteers for the Red Cross. And the initial idea was to make ourselves available for deployment. Uh, the deployment had to be three weeks. It was mandatory. And so we had to start the process of 
completing the training, having the conversation with our employer about the time we needed to be away from work. And all of this is happening kind of simultaneously at the same time as, as the care packages project is moving along. And so we ended up going on our own to Puerto Rico because, unfortunately, uh, Miriam actually hurt her back. And there was a concern about the Red Cross not being able to do the medical clearance because they wanted to put us on a team called bulk distribution, which basically was lifting and pushing boxes for 10 hours a day, depending on the different towns that you were sent to, to bring provisions, supplies, donations. And so it very quickly became evident that if we wanted to do this trip to Puerto Rico, we were going to have to go on our own with the connections that we had already made on the island through the care packages and through our own families and friends being there. I had the privilege of going to college there, so a lot of my friends from college that are still there are working, you know, in nonprofits, are involved in different community kind of leadership initiatives. And so we started with those connections that we already had. And um, it happened very organically. We decided to go. We originally were going to go for about two and a half weeks. I ended up staying a total of three weeks because of other commitments there. But it was evident very much since the first day that the decision that we made to go and to go on our own was the right one. When we started you know, going to some of the towns that we had sent these care packages to and had the actually the privilege of being able to meet these folks face-to-face and have them say to us, the box you sent us is the first help we got from anyone, was something that was devastating and beautiful at the same time. And so it became this whole interconnectedness that people literally, you know, write about in movies, <laughs> except it was happening to us and it was happening every day. And it happened pretty much the whole time we were there. So definitely an amazing experience to have. Very intense, very productive, but very rewarding at the same time. The travel planning. So I'm the planner in this marriage. And it was difficult for me because I knew there were so many unknowns. And so I had to very quickly adjust to that. Miriam is more go with the flow. We'll figure it out. You know, wherever we end up, it'll be fine. You know, and I'm always more, but we have to have an itinerary. We need to know what towns we're going to and who we're connecting with. And so it it ended up being a balance of that. Uh, We were very, very lucky and we're very grateful that people literally just stepped up to help with uh, resources over there. For example, the first two weeks we were there, Medium's father said, borrow my SUV. And so we were able to you know, use his vehicle. He was appreciative that we were using his vehicle to do this work. And we were appreciative that we, had, you know, we didn't have to worry about a rental for two weeks, which was a couple hundred dollars. We bought our airfare on our own. We covered those expenses as well as, you know, our meals, our, our expenses there on the ground. We primarily knew that we were going to stay with family and friends, and so we knew that we didn't have to worry about expenses with lodging, but we didn't know where we were going in terms of, you know, who had electricity, who didn't. And so when you're working 10 to 12 hours a day doing this type of work, and to go back to, you know, a place where you can recharge and literally, you know, recharge with electricity, but also recharge your own batteries is crucial. And so we were very, very lucky to have, you know, family and friends that opened their doors to us 
completely without any hesitation. Someone here who's a student at Mount Holyoke College, who's one of my mentees in the political world, and her parents are in Puerto Rico. And when they found out that we were there doing this work, we had connected about some donations and other pieces um, when they were here visiting her. They said, you should just stay at our house. We have electricity. We have you know, easy access to the highway. And so it was all these factors that just kind of fell into place. So we, we were adopted for sure on different levels and very grateful for our fellow Boricuas for stepping up. Deciding to go on our own or, or hurting my back, I guess, prior to, to that was almost like a, not a blessing, right? But, but it, it, while I was there, I was fine. I took very good care of myself and, and my, you know, my physical well-being. But it was sort of a blessing because then we, we were free to do so much work on the ground and we had these donations that people had trusted us to carry, to, to be the conduit, you know, to, to be the carriers of this, to bring to the people that needed the most. When these donations happened, people would tell us, you know, I want this to go to the people. I don't want this to be connected to any government organization or none of that. We want, we want to make sure that this money goes to those who you feel need it. And so that's what we did. We made sure that we met the people, that we connected with them, that we heard their stories, that we spent time with them. And so it took 14 hours a day for us to be able to do that. But we feel that we did justice, you know, to the people who trusted us with these donations. You know, we did the best we could at documenting. You can never transfer the emotions that that you feel as you are watching these pictures but i you know i, I wish people could see and, and feel what we felt because while like josie said while devastating and tragic and heavy for us it was beautiful at the same time and seeing the the, the appreciation in people's faces, in, in their words, in their notes, in their, you know, we brought so many thank you cards. And we when we came home, there were piles of thank you letters and cards that we received from people. And that you cannot put it in words. There's no way you can put it in words. And we also felt the, like Miriam said, the responsibility to the people who donated money, to the people who you know, donated supplies. I mean, as soon as we, as soon as we decided that we were going in person, because it wasn't the same to bring, you know, a three thousand dollar donation to a nonprofit, or, you know, to to get solar lamps to the people who needed it the most, or water filters, which ended up being an amazing connection with um, a pastor and a rabbi from Florence that, through their churches, had been doing a collaboration to fundraise for extremely, you know well put together water filters through the Life Straw brand. Um, they're called Life Straw Family Filters. And, you know, these are filters that are 60 to $80 a piece. They, you know, they process 4,600 gallons of water, which is the equivalent of the water for a family of four for a year. And um, as, you know, as soon as folks figured out that we were going to Puerto Rico, um, someone who I had met through politics, who was uh, running a campaign for one of my colleagues on the city council, said, you need to meet Pastor Irv because, you know, he's trying to get these filters to Puerto Rico and you're going. And so maybe you guys can figure something out. And it started with a simple email 
And we ended up having daily contact with Pastor Irv until the day we left for Puerto Rico and while we were on the island as well. And we ended up delivering more than 200 water filters that came to us at no cost because these congregations, right, these these parishioners had actually, you know, done the fundraising for it and, and literally had packed these duffel bags, which were so big that they took up the whole back seat of a car. <laughs> One duffel bag would be the size of the back. That's how big they were. And we brought three of those with us. So we brought a hundred of those with us. And then we made connections as we were on the island for those two, three weeks to people who were traveling from New England to Puerto Rico to bring more duffel bags with them so we could continue the distribution. So at the end of the day, we distributed over 200, and we also made some amazing connections for Pastor Irv and the rabbi as well so that they can continue this collaboration. And so we came home from all this and kind of sat down and processed everything and realized that we delivered filters in 15 cities and towns in Puerto Rico. So 15 out of 78 is pretty good for a two in to three, three week period. <laughs> um, and the one, the, plate, the one place that we delivered the most uh, was in Vieques. We felt very strongly about that. So we distributed 40 there. And that was one of the places that really, really stayed with us. Just to to give you an idea of of some of the places that that we went to, I just want to kind of read off the list of the cities and towns of where these filters went. Jabucoa, Jauco, Umacao, Patillas, Utuado, Comerillo, Vega Baja, Orocovis, Bayamón, Vega Alta, Aguas Buenas, Manatí, San Lorenzo, Vieques, and Tuabaja. And those are 15 places that these filters went to. And because we brought this, quote unquote, extra money with us, we said, if we're going to bring water filters, we need to spend money here so that we can bring more materials to these folks. And so we would do these shopping sprees and we would fill carts with the money that we had brought from here, from Holyoke and Western Mass in general, and um, bought diapers and toiletries and batteries and food and and I mean it was the list was just ongoing and so like Miriam said we could never do justice to everything we documented everything as best as we could but living it at the moment was something that you know we couldn't even describe so so arriving in these towns with these donations in hand and the faces of the people and the hugs that we received and over and over again we would hear la diaspora es increíble la diaspora está salvando a Puerto Rico. La diáspora está trabajando lo que el gobierno no está trabajando, right? So it's all these, like, these these pieces of people who are in different towns who don't know each other who are giving the same message, which is the Puerto Ricans that are on the mainland are going above and beyond, and we see you, and we value you, and we cherish you. Pero mira, the support that we received from the moment we decided you know, to do the care packages to the moment we decided to go to PR and NPR was just amazing. It was heartwarming. And, 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 and Josie, I tell Josie, you know, you must have an award with, with social media because she, she just posted whatever she posted. I, we need, we need coffee. We need more coffee. And, and, and two minutes later, literally two minutes later, our, you know, there's somebody knocking on our door with coffee. We need batteries. We need, you know, and so the day we were leaving, day before we were leaving, we, we go to pick up the, the filters and there are these huge 
duffel bags that were like six feet, probably five feet long <laughs> and two feet wide. And so we we were we, we were just like, where the heck are we going to put these in our little car? You know, and we filled our little uh, suitcases with um, our, you know, the carry on with a couple of, you know, uh, outfits. And then the rest, we had two other additional uh, suitcases, large suitcases filled with donations. And then we had the three duffel bags that looked like, I mean, they look like coffins. They, they were so huge. And so we were stuck with them and not knowing how do, how do we make, how do we take, get these to the airport? And so she puts it up on social media. Hey, I need someone with a truck because these, you know, to travel these to the airport. Not even... 20 minutes later. Not even, yeah, 20 minutes later, someone from the, from the community says, I have a truck. I'll take you. Six o'clock in the morning, this person is at home, amazing, and taking us to the, to the airport. It was one of her constituents. Then we get to the airport, and, of course, we're like, uh, they're probably going to charge us. We have so many things that we're carrying. And so we get there, and there's already someone who, through contacts, you know, um, from Josie, someone already waiting for us with the tickets in hand saying, here, just they didn't even wait the, 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 the material, the stuff, the, the, the suitcases. They just threw them through the, through the belts. No questions asked. And so we get there, and so and we and as we're in the air in the airplane, and I meet this guy who happens to be going back to PR because he's working, working with AT and T, and so he says that he's working overtime, and so every overtime money he makes, he just gives it out to the people in the community, and so we're telling him what we're doing, what we're there for, and as we are receiving our suitcases and, and the huge bags, right, they were calling attention in the airport. He comes to me and he says, here, and he hands me $50. And he says, do with it whatever is best, you know, to help. This is little, but, you know, I'm, I'm and so just like that, out of no, you know, some, a stranger who just met me in the airplane gives me $50 to add to the donations. And so then we get to Puerto Rico and people are, you know, people who are working, who have secured jobs, who didn't lose their jobs and have, quote unquote, a more normal life than, than those who lost it all and had already been, you know, suffering because they're, they're poor, right? And so they lost their jobs because the McDonald's didn't open or their, you know, the, the, the bakeries closed because they couldn't pay for that month or, you know, so many business, small businesses are closed and so many people were without jobs. But those who kept their jobs who were able to work for corporate or whatever were there working, were underground working, bringing supplies, bringing donations, bringing hot food, hot meals. And so we met so many amazing people. And so we joined them too. And so it was such a beautiful experience in that sense, the support that we received and the support that we provided. It was just, it was an amazing experience. And I'm glad that we went on our own. And also, you know, we, we arrived on November 11th on Veterans Day is when we flew in. And that evening we were invited to join 
a group of volunteers that had traveled from Worcester that I had met one of them through the Bernie Sanders campaign. We were Facebook friends, and and she knew that I was going to be in in Puerto Rico, and so she reached out and she said, you know, the uh, the disaster team for Massachusetts uh, is actually working at Centro Medico, which is literally 15 minutes from my aunt's house, which is where we were going to go directly from the airport. And she said, you know, we want to do a dinner for them to thank them for the work they're doing. Do you want to join us? And so that was our first stop. You know, we we left the airport, we picked up my aunt, and we went over to Centro Medico. And the beauty of that was that Centro Medico, for the folks that are listening, is um, is the hospital that is basically housed in the same place where the medical sciences campus is for the University of Puerto Rico. And my aunt, who raised me with my mom and my uncle, is a retired professor from that campus. And so when I told her we were going to Centro Medico, she said, of course, I'm coming. And so to be there with her, with the disaster team from Massachusetts, who are, you know, the federal folks that are doing the medical triage that are, you know, they were set up in these tents that were outside of the emergency room of Centro Medico, literally just day in, day out. They were there, I think they were there for about three, four weeks total doing this work, helping, you know, the Puerto Rican people, trying to, you know, empty out the emergency room because the emergency rooms, of course, became the default for everything, right? Because all the, the, the doctor's offices were closed. There's still to this day, and we are now, you know, almost three months from these hurricanes, there are medical offices that have not been able to open. There are dentist offices that have not been able to open because if you think about the issues with water and the, the potable water and the, the bacteria and all these other pieces, like how are you going to have a dental office? And so, you know, my, my cousin's, uh, wife is a dentist. She hasn't been able to open her practice. And so she's been without work for almost three months. And so people think, oh, the doctors, they should be fine. Well, that's actually a group of people that were hit really hard and no one's talking about. And so just being able to start our journey at Centro Medico with the, the Massachusetts disaster team, the medical team, I think was really very symbolic and they gave us a tour of their facilities there. They shared with us what they were doing. We couldn't take pictures there because it's a federal process, and so everything is very kind of confidential in that sense. So there are, you know, there are p- several places that we went to in the three weeks that we were not able to document. Another place where that happened was Hospital del Niño, where you know we met 34 inpatient kids that are there for life until they become adults. And it was a beautiful experience, but again, it was something we couldn't share with people because of confidentiality. So so there was a lot of that, so we, we really tried to do the best we could so that folks could see and, and live what we were experiencing. The feeling of arriving to a devastated Puerto Rico. Before we left for our trip, someone who, from the area that had been down there doing relief work had posted a picture that she was able to take from the plane that showed all the blue tarps covering where the roofs should have been. And that picture really stuck with me. And it was, it was one of those pictures that I said to Miriam, we really need to prepare ourselves mentally because we don't know what we're going to see. We, we're, we've been together 11 years, and every year we've gone to Puerto Rico at least once, sometimes twice. And so the memories that we have all over the island we knew this time was going to be completely different. I think the fact that we went when we did, you know, Hurricane Maria was September 20th. We landed November 12th. So almost two months later, 
it wasn't those visuals as as intense as we saw through social media, through the news of the brown. You know, if you remember that footage that it almost looked like somebody had dropped a bomb and everything had burnt. We saw that in some places, but that was not the majority of what we saw. What we saw is what Miriam very quickly called the little Lorax trees. And what that meant was that the trees were regrowing, but they were these, they looked like little cotton balls. And and we saw this everywhere. And, and it was, it's an image that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be going back to Puerto Rico in a couple of weeks just to, to spend a week with my family. And I know that that visual is not going to be there anymore because the landscape has changed once again. But I think for me, those those images of of the trees kind of regrowing and and these they like Miriam said the Lorax trees because it looked like a scene from the Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. Um, they looked like little cotton balls. To me, the image of the trees entangled with the cables and the poles and and everything just so enmeshed uh, like into each other where you just look at some of these places that we went to and you say how long is it really going to take to rebuild specific towns in Puerto Rico and which ones will literally just empty out and be forgotten and I think to me that was one of the most painful thoughts while I was there is some of the places that we went to that people were already leaving and no one knew if they were coming back. Getting ready to go to Puerto Rico was nerve-wracking for us. We had to really prepare ourselves emotionally and mentally to, for whatever, whatever we were to expect there. And so we hear our family say, we're okay, we're fine. Oh, we're fine, we're just, you know... And then you hear the, the, the three-hour lines that they had to make, and, they, and you go, and, and, and people there were burnt. Their, their faces were burnt from the sun. That, you don't see that. You know, when we were on the airplane heading over there, you could feel the, the sadness, the uncertainty in the air, and the clapping I don't even remember if it, it happened. It didn't happen. I don't. It didn't, it didn't happen. happen. And I would tell Josie, I, I hope, and I wonder. You know, when when you land in Puerto Rico and when you land in in Caribbean and in, in hot tropical weather la- lands, there is a special smell. And in Puerto Rico, every time I s- step foot outside, there's this smell of of sand and heat and dirt and it was just it's it's a beautiful special smell that I it I can I can detect right and and it's different when you go to Costa Rica or Colombia or Mexico it's very different and I wanted to feel that I wanted to smell that and I didn't and I knew and and I was nervous about that and then we get to the island, and depending on where you are in the island, is devastation. One street is, buildings are broken, the poles are down, there's no passage, or people made passage, you know, with their own uh, machetes and their own tools. And then, you know, two streets, four streets down, Everything seemed fine, like nothing ever happened, except there's no electricity, right? And then we are, 
we're driving in these huge avenues and there's no electricity and cars are going, there's four lanes on each side and, and cars are trying to inch in. And it's like, it's like a movie scene because everybody is desperate. Everybody needs to get to go to get to their places. And, and then you get to other parts of the island and people are just resilient. They're okay. They're almost accepting that nature took a turn in that, you know, that they will rebuild. They will be okay without electricity, without water, but they will be okay. And then when we returned, when we came back in the airport, the sadness in the people's faces, those who were leaving the island for good. I met this young woman who came to pick up her mother And as I was talking to her, you know, and, and what we were doing, her mother was just staring at me. Her face, she didn't want to leave. She didn't want to go. Her daughter had to go twice to Puerto Rico because she didn't want to leave her, you know, her belongings. She lost it all, but she didn't want to leave. And we met so many people who had nothing The walls were down. There were nothing, nothing left. But they wanted to salvage the little that they had. They, they, they didn't want to leave their, their homes. So much of that. But the scene in the airport, you know, you pass through the flight that was leaving to New York and the flight that was leaving to Orlando and the flight that was leaving for Fort Lauderdale filled with families, Puerto Rican families, that you could tell were leaving and possibly to never come back. It was really tough. That was really hard. And also the, the struggles of those staying. I remember very vividly the day after we landed, that first night we stayed at my aunt's house, which is where we usually stay when we're in San Juan. And there's a panaderia, right, a bake shop, that we go to usually for breakfast. You know, it's a place that I've been to so much that, you know, I recognize the staff, I know what I want to get, I, you know. And it's usually a pretty upbeat place, a place where people are having coffee in the morning and hanging out and chatting. And when I drove there, I, I went to go pick up breakfast. I was going to bring it back because Miriam was getting ready because we were going to be leaving to Jauco. And, um, and so I said, I'll just go get the breakfast and come back. And the three-minute drive from my aunt's house to the panaderia was like a war zone. There was a car on the side of the street that somebody had lit on fire and just left it there, probably just to not have to deal with car payments or insurance or whatever. There were uh, streets that were blocked with debris, with uh, parts of trees that had fallen with garbage that people just kind of kept dumping. It was almost like illegal dumping was now an issue everywhere. And there was literally not one town or city in the whole island that could have prepared for the amount of debris, you know, and trash that was going to obviously come as a result of, of these storms. And so people just kind of got used to that. And so they just kept contributing to that dumping. And it was this like wake up moment for me of 
how do you get to this point? Like, how do you, how do you realize that it's okay to have the, the corner of your street become the dumping ground because you don't have a place to put whatever you lost in your house? And so literally you could see the furniture on the streets. You could see just huge, huge things that, you know, satellite dishes, things that obviously the regular, you know, trash pickup was not going to take. And so it just became this kind of like, well, whatever, it's not going to be my problem anymore. I'm just going to keep contributing to it. And so it didn't matter what town we went to, that was usually what we observed. And to me, that was so painful because it was it was the complete contradiction of what I know Puerto Ricans to be on the island, which is, you know, they're very proud of their neighborhoods and their streets and their homes. And, and so it was this, it almost was significant and symbolic of this burnout that Miriam was talking about. Like they just didn't care anymore. And so when I got to the panaderia and I stood in line and the line was very long, it was the first time ever that I had stood in a line of about 20 people to order breakfast. Um, usually it would be a line of two or three people. It's the whole, you know, it was cash only the system was down, they were on a generator. And this was what we saw over and over again in all the businesses that we, that we went to. And the chit chat in the line was different. It wasn't the usual, you know, let's trash the politicians, let's talk about, you know, what we're doing over the weekend, what festival's going on. The conversations were literally about who lost a job, who didn't know if they were going to be able to stay, who you know was concerned about an, an elderly person who was very sick and because they didn't have electricity they were concerned about you know their health and their status those were the conversations that were happening and and that to me was such a wake up call in the sense of this is not my puerto rico that i'm used to this is a very different puerto rico and everyone we spoke to including the mayor of San Juan, that we had the privilege of spending quite a bit of time with her, said, this storm changed me. And so I think in the back of our mind, we always kept thinking about that. And when we were doing our work, we always wanted to be aware and be respectful of how this storm impacted everyone in a different way. But at the end of the day, it changed everyone. Because no one can really say that life was business as usual after Maria. For some people, it took a week. Great. For other people, it's still been almost three months, and they're still as they were September 21st. This is a special feature of the Radio Plasma podcast, the Boricua Care Packages Project, a journey of love and hope. This is the first of two parts of this documentary chronicle narrated by Josie Valentin and Miriam Quiñones, describing the details of their three-week journey to the island of Puerto Rico, providing help and relief after Hurricane Maria. The session was produced at the Plasma Media Lab in the Gandara Youth Development Center in Holyoke, Massachusetts. I'm Johan Rashi Vega. Thank you for listening. <laughs>